friends, and welcome to Beauty the Interviews, a podcast production of The Beautiful Project, a grassroots storytelling initiative that invites women to belong in the world with substance and with strength. I'm Sarah Stevens, the founder of The Beautiful Project, and your host for this podcast. I love creating these interviews for all of you for so many reasons, but this particular interview shed light on something that I hadn't really thought about before. It gave me something new to adore about the privilege of holding space for your stories. You see, most of the women I interview here have stories with resolutions. While they often acknowledge that healing is a lifelong process, they've also made steps towards sentiments that feel like a mostly happy ending. That is just not the case in this interview. In this interview, we will hear from Tiffany, a true survivor in every sense of the word. Tiffany tells the truth about the lifelong impact of trauma, about what it looks like to survive sexual assault, about the ways that sometimes surviving feels like you're just barely hanging on. Tiffany doesn't spend much time on happy endings because she doesn't really believe that happy endings are part of her story, which still strikes me as tragic and exquisite, or maybe tragically exquisite, or something in between. I'm honestly still not sure. However, I am sure that Tiffany is one of the bravest people that I have the privilege of knowing, and that's all I really need to know. This episode could be triggering for anyone who has survived domestic abuse and sexual assault. We also reference suicidal ideations and other effects of trauma, so please be sure to exercise caution if any of these topics could be damaging to you. So without further ado, let's make some space to hear a survival story from the very brave and very beautiful Tiffany. Let's, um, let me start with an introduction. This is my friend Tiffany. So Tiffany and I have known each other, um, about a year and a half probably. Mm -hmm. So a couple of other women actually from Lead Her have, uh, interviewed with me and that's how Tiffany, Tiffany and I met each other was through Lead Her. I assigned her a mentor and, um, however, like, uh, I remember the first time I met you, met you in person was at the birthday party. Yes. Okay, so Leader had a birthday party, and uh, by this point, I only knew of Tiffany because she and her mentor had written in and told me their story. But uh, I saw her at the birthday party, and I talk about this a lot on the interviews. There are some people who I don't have an explanation for what it is about them, but they catch my attention, and um, there's something about your energy or your spirit that, that grabs me. It always has. And so, and when I first met you in person, I felt like I had known you it just wasn't easy. I was like, I don't know, maybe that felt kind of funny to you, but I was like, I feel like I've known her forever. And I treated you as such. I feel like there was this instant familiarity between us, um, that I might be making up, but whatever, if I am, it's fine. I'm still, no, 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 you're okay. Good. I was like, somebody tell me I'm okay. Um, so then, um, when I conceived of the beautiful project or when the idea came to me, I uh, knew instantly that I wanted you to be one of the models for the beautiful project because, as you know, the the purpose is one voice, every body. And so um, I wasn't, I'm not really interested in the, not that there's anything wrong with the thin, white, cisgendered, straight story. It's fine. I don't have any animosity toward that narrative, but it's the dominant narrative. And so the purpose of the project is to tell the marginalized narrative. I want a space for the, for the stories for the other bodies, the ones that aren't um, glorified or held up as ideal. And so 
I invited you uh, to be a model, and and similar to this graduation gown story, yeah. <laughs> right? Yep, I have issues so, with trying things on. So I asked Tiffany, I said, hey, do you want to model for this? And then we had this whole conversation about what people were going to wear for this, and I was like, let me just get the stuff. And you were like, you don't understand. And I was like, see, so here's the deal. I do understand. I have been, I have been dressing this body for a long time. I, I understand. And so I bought, I bought a lot of options for you. I brought a lot of options for you to try on. And I remember when you walked in, actually, you were like, this fits and I want to keep it. And I was like, it is your parting gift. So, um, so that's the piece about your intersection with the beautiful project. We, I interviewed all the models for the beautiful project. Uh, a couple months ago was the first interview that I published, but you were ill and not able to be with us. And as much as I wanted to hold space for all of those interviews, I really wanted your story as well. And so here we are, finally, many, many months later, mm-hmm. with um, a new opportunity for us to sit down and talk. So thank you for saying yes. Absolutely. You keep saying yes to me. I keep asking you for I things. I won't say no. You push me outside my box, and I need that, so. Okay, good. Yeah. I'll keep that in mind, and I'll keep asking <laughs> you to do things that are extremely uncomfortable. But I take care of you. You I, do. I take you care do. of you. Whether it's... Um, you know, new leggings or a bottle of wine. I make sure you have what you need when you sit with me. Yes. I hope I do. So, um, have you? So, I the interviews usually follow the same format. I ha- I have an opening question, and then we just we just stay with it, mm-hmm. right? So it it twists and turns according to your narrative, right? So the opening question is that I want to know the moment when you realized that your body was different from other bodies. Hmm. For me, I'd have to say in high school. Okay. I've, I don't know. I've always had this vision of myself as being something I wasn't necessarily. Like people, oh, you're, you're fine, you're cute. But to me, I was always the bigger person. Like I had best friends that were your average looking person and I'm just a little bit thicker. So mm-hmm. I think really in high school... It hit me. We went to um, a football game, and I couldn't find a shirt for my life. I just could not find a shirt. My friend's like, you could borrow one for my mom. And I was like, I have to wear your mom's clothes? And it just, it, like, made it official to me. Okay, you're different. Mm. You're the bigger girl. You're borrowing someone's mom's clothes. This is messed up. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, it's just, that's just how it is. So the understanding that because your body's bigger, it's messed up. That mm-hmm. Those two things are connected. Yeah. Did that exist before that? Did that message exist before that? It did, but it didn't. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I looked at my sisters who were always skinnier, Mm -hmm. and I just couldn't understand why I was the different one. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's kind of always been in the back of my mind. Of course, you got family. Oh, you're fine. Don't worry about it. You're going to grow out of it, whatever. Mm. Grow out of it. Yeah. Because we've got to fix it. Oh, yeah. Something's got to fix it, right? Of course. It's all baby fat that you're holding on to. You're going to change. You need to change. That's all I kept hearing is, you're, you'll change. You know, if you do this, you'll be perfect. So, Tell me about the rest of your family, body size, body stuff. Tell me body stuff about the rest of your family. Well, my issues probably come from my mom. I know that it's hard for her to talk about. She doesn't go into it too much. But I do know that when she was probably my age back in high school, they she was the heavier one. Mm-hmm. Her nose was kind of big compared to all her siblings, so they teased her a lot, which gave her a complex. Mm-hmm. And then when I was little, she was very, very big. I remember her 
coming to drop us off at school and one of the kids called her a school bus. And as a child, you're just embarrassed. You're like, oh my God, my mom, oh my God, they're calling her a school bus. And because she's bright skinned, she's not your average black American. She's bright skinned woman. So they're like, she's yellow like a bus. She's huge. And it just tore me apart. And of mm. course, it made her cry. Yeah. I mean, she's a, a grown woman, but she got little kids ragging on you. And then she'd, you know, be self conscious about her arms and wearing tank tops and things like that. Yeah. So it's kind of always been there. Yeah. Because you watched your. You watched your mom live into the narrative that mm-hmm. uh, that fat should be hidden and shamed. Yep, and that she wasn't good enough. She so. wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. Would you say that your mom's body shame um, restricted other areas of her life? So did she move in the world like she needed to hide or shrink? I think she did. Um, she definitely, from what I've understood, she didn't date for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um she just wasn't comfortable with it. And the way she met my dad was actually through telephone. And she felt like, you know, he can't see me, but he's really into me. So this is working out. Oh. And then, of course, they end up getting married. But, yeah, that's how that started. What was your uh, relationship like with... What was her relationship like with your dad? It was a good one. Um, I didn't really get to see too much. He only lived to be 36, and I was 6 when he died. Oh, wow. So it was very little, but... From what she tells me, he was the best thing that ever happened to her. Mm. Like, he did not care what she looked like. He encouraged her. He wanted her to have children mm-hmm. with him. She had two children before me, which were not his. And so he really, really wanted me. And she's like, but I'm going to get bigger. And he's like, I don't care. I want a baby. Mm-hmm. And so I came. Yeah. And you were only six when he died? Mm-hmm. Do you remember him? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I actually... I just went and visited his grave a couple weeks ago. April 22nd was the anniversary. Mm -hmm. And people are like, you used to be Freddie's shadow. That was his name. They're like, you look just like him. Like, I'd follow him around the house. If he had on his gray uh, stonewashed pants, I had on my gray stonewashed pants. My hair was slicked back like his. Mm. Yeah, I have, it's weird what I can remember for only being six. So you derived a sense of identity from him. Mm Mm-hmm. Huh. And you looked more like him. Yes. Okay. Yep. So, losing him, uh, I would assume, if you were deriving your primary sense of identity from him, Mm -hmm. had to leave you kind of wondering where you fit then without him. Yeah, it was rough. I think his death played a lot into everything that happened later. When he died, my mom had another kid after me, which was my little sister. So her and I shared the same dad. Okay. And when he died, she couldn't handle looking at me. She, I looked so much like him, she could not stand to look at me. She actually tried to drown me, so I had to go live with my aunt and uncle for a little while while she was grieving. It was weird. And was, I was like, my mom doesn't want me. Dad's gone. What am I supposed to do? Like, I'm six, and I'm like, my best friend is gone. I just, like, I'm going to cry. Told so, myself, don't cry. No. But, um... I was like, I don't know what to do. My best friend is gone. My mom doesn't want me. She wants to kill me. Yeah. You know, so. You were just a baby. Mm-hmm. How old are your kids? My kids are 10 and 7. You were just a baby. Mm-hmm. So you lived with who? Your aunt? Yep. Uh, my mom's sister. She was like, you know, we're going to take her because you're obviously hurting. I mean, she didn't. Looking back now, she didn't really want to hurt me, but no, she just yeah. couldn't. She couldn't cope. She's this woman. You've got four kids now, no husband in your life. 
her mom had been ragging on her and was like, you need to marry a man. You need to make something out of yourself. Just always, people just kind of always talk down to her. So when she lost him, a piece of her went too. like, well, what am I supposed to do? They all think I'm a bad mom. I don't look right. I don't fit in. I've got these kids. And now I got this kid that looks exactly like him. I can't deal with it. Yeah. Too so much. it was rough. Yeah. Who intervened? How, how did they, how did you, how were you taken from that situation? Like what happened? So I remember playing uh, with my brother and my sister, my older brother and sister, and I was getting ready to be bath time, and my mom was, like, throwing things in her room. So I'm like, what is that That noise? And I open the door, and she's throwing lamps. I mean, she's just angry. She's going through it. And I don't understand. I'm six. I'm like, you know, what's the matter? What's wrong? And then she just got a glimpse of me and just went after me. And I'm trying to run from her, and my older brother and sister are like, no, no, leave her alone. What's going on? And trying to pull her away, but she was just so angry. And I think it was one of them that contacted another family member and was like, hey, my mom is going nuts. Somebody needs to do something. Mm -hmm. So then um, our neighbor was pretty close with her. She came over and got her, and then my mom was able to call her sister and say, hey, I can't do this. How long did you stay with your aunt? Uh, it's probably two weeks or so. Wow, that's not very long. I thought it would be longer. No. Were no. you afraid to go home? Only because he wasn't there. I was right. scared because he wasn't there and not of her. I was fine with her. I didn't feel like she was going to try to do anything. I just didn't know what it was going to be like anymore. Without him? Mm-hmm. What was it like without him? It was sad. Yeah. Um, like I said, he was... My best friend, I would walk to kindergarten. Back then, you know, you could walk to school and be safe. So I'd walk to kindergarten, do half a day, and then come home and watch the elephant show with him. Like, I remember singing that song with him every day. And I'd have a sandwich, and then I'd walk back to school, come back, and me and him would take off and go visit his friends, and I just didn't have it anymore. So I'd walk to school, and I'm just sitting there rocking back and forth during circle time, crying. And I remember, because my knees were peeling... One of the kids were making fun of me. They were like, your legs look like a chalkboard. And I'm like, what? They're like, you're so black and you've got this white stuff on your knees. It was just rough. Oh. I can't believe I'm talking about it. But it was just rough. And I was like, well, if my dad was here, it wouldn't be Be like like this. this. Yeah. Yeah. It was hard. How does the six-year-old survive that? You just get up and keep going? Yeah, you have to. I've always had this this little voice in my head and I don't know if I I tried to make a connection to him and was like if he was here he would tell me you know keep going like he always pushed me to do things like you know you're gonna be something he was like I don't know what it is about you and these are his exact words he was like you're gonna be the one to take care of this family he's like I know you are even though you're not the oldest and till this day everybody still comes to me to get things done And it's kind of funny. I was like, he was on to something because I'm the only one out of five kids to graduate high school, Mm. graduate college three times. It's like, and I have no footprints in front of me. I know you're creating them. Yeah. And it's hard. And I'm trying to tell my kids that I was like, you know, when it comes to making excuses and not wanting to do things, I can't relate. I was like, because if I was going to have excuses, I would have gave up a long time ago. I had nothing to follow. Absolutely nothing. And made away, so I can't accept excuses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do you remember? So that's very early in your childhood, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, 
Talk a little, so talk a little bit, so we're at six years old. Bring me to like, so does it stay pretty much like that? Just pretty sad and lonely for a long time? Yeah, most of the time. Um, I think I had some moments where I felt like I was okay. I was about 10. We were, we lived in Bettendorf. And then at 10, my mom was like, we have to move. So we're going to be changing schools. And I'm like, oh, boy, I'm about to lose all my friends. I'm about to lose everything Mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't as bad. So we moved, and I started a new school. And I was completely okay with it. But then she's like, we have to move again. And this is when I hit, I think, seventh grade. Yeah. So I was like, I have to leave my school again. I have to leave my friends again. And this time, I just, I wasn't accepting it well. Yeah. I'm like, I I can't keep doing this. And from there, I think I used food as a comfort for Mm -hmm. a while. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I didn't really gain weight, but Mm -hmm. eventually she's like, you keep eating like that and it's going to catch up to you. So, you know, that's always in the back of your mind, but. You're the second person I've interviewed today who um, has talked about, uh, food and comfort about how we relate those two things and every time so there are lots of cultural narratives that I uh, think are bullshit and really want to like pull out of the of everyone's story Mm -hmm. and one of them is the shame that we carry about food being comforting or emotional eating because that's like a freaking diagnosis now Mm -hmm. you know Um, there's nothing disordered about eating in a way to calm or soothe emotions. Food biochemically is intended to break down and create serotonin. It's intended, which is a happy hormone in your brain. It's intended to do that so that you will want to eat because we have to eat to survive. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the things I'd really like to communicate to women, if I can't get at the things like, that fat actually isn't something that has to be covered and shamed. But if I could start with just this little piece, that when you move toward food as comforting, you have done nothing wrong. You have done the thing you are biologically programmed to do. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing. It's not a way that you failed or like. It's you know, I, and we do this real quick shaming thing about it. Like, what well, was my coping mechanism? And everybody's got one. Yeah, all that's true. Have some grace in that space to understand that that's how you were. Sur- you were surviving. Mm-hmm. You didn't come up short or or you weren't existing in the absence of moral virtue. You were literally finding a way to survive because feeling good is actually a really important part of surviving. Right. We do this weird thing where we're like, well, you don't have to feel, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just keep moving. And all that's true, but you have to have consolation somewhere. Mm-hmm. So the fact that food was part of it is a pretty normal thing. Your body was doing what it was meant to do. I don't know what you think about that, but that's what I want to say I, about I'm that. I'm going to go with that, yeah. Well, it's the damn truth. That's yeah, why you're going to go with yes. Because <laughs> it is. And that's, and then all, all that happens for us is that, of course, that gets reinforced over time. I really wish women could find a way to quit saying, well, what I need to fix is that I'm an emotional eater. Mm-hmm. How about we don't try to fix that? How about we just sit with it at least in, because what happens when we shame ourselves for being emotional eaters We never enter into the actual experience of emotionally eating, okay? So when I'm in an emotional eating space or have historically been, I'm not being mindful of the food I'm eating. I'm just trying to get to the place that doesn't feel like this, right? Mm -hmm. So I take in food quickly in large amounts of it. I'm not enjoying anything about it. I'm not not paying attention. Mm -hmm. Are you? No. Okay. 
So I think part of the reason we don't, though, is because we have so much shame about what we're doing, right? So who, people don't, we don't call out into the light the things that we're ashamed of. We do them quickly. We hide them, right? We do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. What if we could just go, no, I'm actually having an emotional eating day. Like, I'm sad, and I don't want to feel sad anymore. And we could at least sit with ourselves long enough to not judge it. I can guarantee that, the, that it, well, I know from my own experience, it's remarkable how much um, less of what I would have called emotional eating I do now because there's no, if I feel an emotion and I want to eat in response to it, I actually let myself, I just pay attention to it mm-hmm. instead of going, no, I'm emotional eating. Right. You know, and that's something to be ashamed of. So uh, I think what I'm trying to say to you in all of that is that I think it's pretty remarkable that your body found a way to survive all that. It's a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And it did. That's what it was doing was finding a way to survive. Yeah. And I think that's pretty sacred, actually. Well, thank you. I agree. (laughs) I'm glad. Take a drink of your wine. Okay. So, 10 years old. Is that when you were moving? Yep. 10 years old moved, and then 12 moved again. Different school districts, different city. It was still in Davenport, but different, different school. And that was, like, the final straw for me. I was like, this is not, it's not working. At that time, she started experimenting with dating again. Now, mind you, she, I have to take that back. When I was 10, she dated a man. And that's where my little brother came from. And that man was horrible. Mm. Horrible. And I could not understand why she would be with someone like him. So when she finally got rid of him and we moved, I'm thinking, oh, we're moving on. But then she went through this phase, I guess we can call it, of trying to relive her past. And she got with like my older sister's dad, who again, it was mm-hmm. an unhealthy relationship all the way around the board. Mm-hmm. And she was, I don't know what she was looking for. She was looking for that love. I think my dad gave her and she could never find it again. Yeah. And, and it, it was taking a toll on her, which was trickling down to us. Of course. Yeah. How did you survive? So then how did you survive junior high and high school with that going on at home? Music. Oh, I didn't know you loved music. Mm-hmm. I sing and I write. I've got about four poetry books, all feelings, capturing every moment along the way, every single moment. I've read a couple poems to her, and she just kind of looked at me like, how dare you? But I was like, it, just, it happened. And it's my story. And it's just what, that's how I was surviving. I was like, put it on paper. I still can't even open them to read them because I was like, I, I relived them all over again. Mm. But yeah, writing and music... I think is what saved me. I had no idea. Yeah, and the music actually comes from my dad. I was his little protege. I'd be singing his little Whitney Houston. He'd send me everywhere. Mm. And so, yeah. Do you ever want to do anything with that? I thought I did. And then once you reach a certain age, especially in the entertainment industry, you kind of have to let it go. Mm. I was like, I better go to school and get a degree because nobody's coming to Iowa to recruit new talent. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. (laughs) What if there was something in between making a living doing that alone and um, and just not doing it at all? Because it occurs to me that if that's the way your soul speaks, right? Mm-hmm. I can tell by the way you talk about it. Mm-hmm. It speaks in notes and, like, I can tell just um, that there, it, there may not be a space for you to do it professionally, you know, but a way for you to be heard that way maybe someday. Mm-hmm. I want to see you on a stage. 
even if it's just like a little Iowa stage somewhere. It'd be fun. Sometimes we go to, um, it's not Miller time anymore, I don't know what they call it, but they do karaoke on Fridays and Saturdays, mm-hmm. and so we go and have a, have a ball with that. Do you, so does being on stage scare you? Do you have like, because that's, you're being seen. I mean, like mm-hmm. you're front and center. I mean, everybody has those nerves. I think if you don't have nerves, there's something wrong. Yeah. But no, it's a good energy and it's a release. Like mm. I've had an aunt who, again, everything goes back to my childhood. You know, I've been in music programs since I was in elementary and my mom could never really make the time to come and see those she was too busy trying to do sporting events with my older siblings, making sure they were there. Never came to a performance. Mm-hmm. I can count on my hand. Once she came to one, and that's because my aunt was like, are you going to go see your daughter sing? She just didn't really care. She didn't, uh, at least I think she didn't care. I don't know. And Do you think that all stems back to her grief? Her inab- are you guys close today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Which is funny. Yeah. I want to know how you got there. Because, well, not right this second. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. But I'm wondering, as you're telling me that, if some of her distance is about the pain she was in looking at you, mm-hmm. you know, or being close to you, especially if you were musical. And he was, was he musical? I don't ever remember him singing. I know he just liked to listen to music and dance. Okay. And he would twirl with her and dance with her. And he got her playing records all the time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So music probably reminded her too. Mm-hmm. So you were in music programs, and she never came to see you? Never came. I did many, many talent shows. And, again, maybe in high school she came to the second night, not even the opening night of the talent show, which she missed something spectacular because I was on stage singing, and the music just cut off. And as an entertainer, a lot of people, I mean, you just go with it, or you freeze, flight, whatever that is. Yeah. And I was like, okay, the music's off. As I'm thinking this in my head, I'm still singing. And I just belted it a cappella. Now, this song was Deborah Cox, Nobody's Supposed to Be Here. That is a major ballad. And to do it with no music, and I mean, the audience went nuts. And all I could think about is, my mom's not here. Mm. I didn't even care about the praise. I was like, my mom's not here. Like, oh my God, Sarah, you're going to have me crying all night. I was like, why can't my mom be here for... Things like this. And then she comes the second night, which it went off without a hitch. There was nothing bad, and it was still a good show. But I was like, you missed a moment. You just can't recreate those moments. Mm -mm. So, I don't know. It it hurts. Does it still hurt? Oh, yeah. 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 I was talking about this uh, to my fiancé. And he's like, you know, you were in elementary. You have to let it go. And I said, here's the thing. I don't. Even till this day, I said, my mom has favorite children. And I've told her this. I was like, we know who your favorite kids are. I said, I am by far her least favorite child. He's like, that's not true. I said, listen to me. (laughs) I know my mother. I am her least favorite child. And then I've asked her about it. And she's like, that's because I don't have to worry about you. She's like, I don't have to worry about you. I know you're going to be fine. She's like, the other ones, they they need me. And I was like, you don't think I need a mom? Mm. Like, in her brain, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm trying to see it from her perspective. She thinks I'm so strong that she needs to tend to the other ones, but I break, too. You have a six-year-old, you have a six-year-old girl in you. I can feel it on you. Mm-hmm. You have a six-year-old girl in you, and you've created, you're going to make me cry, you've <laughs> created um, a spectacular amount of armor around you in order to shield her. But you definitely still have something in you that wants to be seen by your mother. Mm-hmm. Really seen and like loved in your brokenness. Like 
see me. Yeah. And see past the thing I put on for the world, which is um, no excuses. I'm going to push through it. You know? Yeah, you are. Uh, yeah, you are. <laughs> that stands right. on its own. However, that doesn't mean that you don't want to be seen mm-hmm. and received gently, you know? Yeah. Even she, what kills me the most, I mean, I'm glad she has a great relationship with my kids, but when she tells them that she loves them, I'm like, where was my love? You never told me you loved me. You never hugged me. You never kissed me. You'd push me off of you. Like, where was that for me? Oh, just stop it. You're too old now. No, no I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> like, she doesn't get it. Hmm. I have so many things. Um, so let's go to, when did you, okay, so you graduate from high school mm-hmm. and you survived that all, like you survived junior high and high school with music and poetry and finding a way to just pour yourself out on paper mm-hmm. and pour yourself out in your voice. Yep. And what happens after high school? High school was rough. Um, Towards the end of high school, my mom, again, was in a relationship that was very toxic. She was dating my sister, my older sister's dad, and I never had a good feeling about him. Mm -hmm. And one night I'm sleeping, I was 11th grade, no, 10th grade, 10th grade, and I'm sleeping and I was like, God, what is this thing crawling on my leg? I kept flicking the hand. I was, thought it was a mouse or something. I was like, I don't know what it is. I open my eyes and her dad is on the side of my bed with his hands trying to get in my private parts. So I jump up and I'm screaming. It's like three o'clock in the morning. I run downstairs and I'm like, mom, you need to get your boyfriend. He, he was just trying to touch me. And she's like, no, what? No, he wasn't. What? I was like, mom, he was in my room. He was trying to touch me. She did not believe me. I was like, who wakes up at three o'clock in the morning to tell you that? And he goes and tells her that he thought my room was the bathroom. So my sister, which is his daughter, wakes up and I tell her what happened. She was the only person that believed me. Her and my mom's sister. I told my cousin what happened at school and she went home and told her mom who came over and she was like, okay, you need to do something about this. This Mm -hmm. is not okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, my mom wasn't trying to hear it. She took his side, um, didn't want anything to do with me. She's like, she can go. I'm not ruining my relationship. And I'm like, you're kidding. Hmm. Which, again, hurt. I'm like, what's it going to take for you, like you said, to see me? How? I don't understand. I don't get it. So my sister, God bless her, took all his clothes and burned them in the front yard. Like, I will never forget this day. (laughs) This is her own father, and she lit up all his stuff in the front yard. And my mom's driving down the street, and she's calling us names. He's calling us names. They turned my little brother and had him calling us names, and they drove off. And I was like, I can't stay here. I cannot be in this environment. So one of my best friends, her mom was like, you can come stay with us if you need to. Yeah. So I pretty much finished out high school with my best friend and her family. Yeah. So then my first year out of high school, like my, my story just keeps getting better. 2004, June 4th, I met this guy at a gas station and my friend's like, oh, he seems pretty nice. You should go out on a date with him. And I was like, yeah, but I don't really do that. I'm not... I'm very prude. I'm not that kind of person. She's like, just go out on the date. See what it's all about. If you have any problems, give me a call. I work third shift. I'll be up all night. I say, okay. So I go and I pick this guy up and we're at this party. 
well, this woman is acting very weird. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? I don't get it. I'm fresh out of high school. These are all kind of older people. This guy had to be like probably 21, now I'm 18. Mm-hmm. And this girl comes over, she's got a knife. And I'm like, what is that? Okay, I'm getting in the car and I'm leaving. And he's like, oh, I'm coming with you. She's crazy. Well, if that makes sense later. That was his ex-girlfriend. And apparently he only asked me out to make her jealous. So she's, like, trying to kill me at this party, and I had no idea what was going on. So we're leaving from the party, and he's like, yeah, I want you to drop me off real quick. I live at this apartment, and whatever, I'll just give you a call. And I'm like, oh, that's fine. So I pull over, and he's like, before I go, aren't you going to kiss me? I'm like, uh, no, I don't really know you in that whole situation. I don't think so. And he's like, oh, no, you're going to kiss me. And I was like, please tell me this is not that kind of situation. And of course it was. And so this guy is way bigger than me. And he grabs my hands. And he's like, you're either going to do what I want. He's like, I could tell you like this. You can get beat up and I'm still going to get what I want. Or you can just give it to me. And at that given moment, I'm like, dude, I don't even know you. Why are you doing this? And he wasn't hearing it. Mm -hmm. This happened in the back of the gallery bar here in Davenport. And he raped me in the front seat of my car. And then when he got out, has the nerve to say, I'm going to call you. I was like, you're kidding. He's going to call you? Yeah. And it took me a while to understand. Like, I mean, I don't even remember how I got back to my friend's house. I, I blacked out after that. I remember her coming home and she's like, what happened on the date? And I was like, it was horrible. And I just lost it. And I immediately hopped in the shower. I felt so disgusting, so ashamed. I felt like I gave in. I was confused. I'm like, did he rape me or did I let him? I don't understand. Right. I just, it was hard to understand. And so I tell my mom about it. And she was like, well, are you sure that's how it happened? And I'm like, you're kidding. I was like, I don't want to deal with this. I I just, I don't want to deal with this. And she's like, well, do you maybe want to go to the police? And I was like, if nobody's going to believe me, yeah. you know, especially coming from you, right. I don't want to deal with it. Yeah, because you looked to her to say you needed her to lead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she did it. And I never did. I never went to the cops, never did any of that. Did he call you? I changed my phone number the next day. Um, but it was so, so funny because I saw him on the registered sex offenders list. This is a regular thing for him. He's got a victim that was like 11 is his youngest. So this is a, he's a regular predator. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So actually I have a song called June 4th Mm. and it talks about that. It's just been rough. That was really rough for me. Tell me, um, so your friend, you were with your friend then? Mm -hmm. You lived with your friend then? Mm -hmm. This was... This is 2004. So you had just graduated. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Tiffany, how did you heal from that? Are you still, like, did you have anyone? Any? I know your mom, I know your mom was not there again. Mm-hmm. Did you have anyone? Just my friend, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never really talked about it much. I just write it, wrote, wrote with all my feelings, journaled it that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, never really talked about it. Hmm. Thank you for sharing it with me. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me how you met. So I know you have, I know you've been with your fiance a long, a while. Yeah. Yeah. A long time. So I actually met him when I was 19 
So right this after is, this. Mm-hmm. Right after this event. Um, how that came to be is I, my brother, he also does music. He likes to rap. And he had this CD of all the artists that were local around here that um, recorded the studio. And I heard this one particular song, and I'm like, who is that? Oh, it's this, this young guy. You don't know him. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know my brother being a big brother. And so one night, he's like, hey, Tiff, I've got music. Can you come to the studio with me? I want you to do the chorus. And I'm like, oh, that's fine. So we go to the studio, and there's usually 30 or so people there, and there was a lot of people there. He's like, oh, this is the guy you heard on the CD. Oh, my sister likes your song, just real nonchalant. And the guy's like, oh, hey, he introduces himself. And um, I was like, yeah, I heard your song. It's pretty neat. And he's like, yeah, I heard you sing. So he heard me and my brother working on our stuff. And he's like, maybe we can set a time up to come in, and maybe you and I can do a song together. I'm like, oh, cool. So... I think it was like two weeks later, me and him went to the studio. And usually, like I said, there's like about 30 people there. There was nobody there that night. Just him, a spotlight in the piano. It was really weird how there was nobody there. And ever since, been joined at the hip. Really? Mm-hmm. And you guys have two babies? Mm-hmm. Ten and seven. Ten and seven. Uh, boys? Boy and girl. Our ten. son is ten. Yeah. Okay. Um, tell me what you love about him. I think I love the fact that he sees no flaws. He thinks they're, it's just what makes me unique. And he's been like that since day one. In my brain, I was never good enough. I was like, he's so handsome. He is not going to be interested in me because this is what I've built of myself. I was like, you know, you're not little and petite like the rest of these girls or who I thought he should be with. And he never saw it like that. He still doesn't see it like that. He was like, I love you for you. If I wanted somebody else, I would be with somebody else. Yeah. So I think that's what I love the most. You know what's amazing to me? So here this, again, second woman today who said that the person who loves her loves her that way. And it's so fascinating to me that in spite of, it's like, it's like there's this deeper wisdom that lives in us that even though we can't get there ourselves, we crave that thing you're talking about. The person who goes, um, it's not even that, uh, So I didn't need my wife to look at me and I didn't need her to be like, to look past my body. It's like that she actually, I feel seen with her and loved completely. Mm -hmm. Like she's not getting past my fat body. She actually loves it. Mm -hmm. Like, and not in like a, you know, fetish way, but like in a... This is the whole person who I love, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that I love that even when we can't get there ourselves, that there's this inner wisdom in us that seems to put that out into the universe that says, but I'm craving it. Mm-hmm. I really am craving it. Tell me how you're... So, but I would assume at points, though, your perception of yourself and his perception of you are at odds. Oh, yeah. Probably all the time. Mm-hmm. How does that play itself out? I try to reason with myself. Like, if he was not happy, he would not be here. He would Mm -hmm. be with somebody else. So, I mean, he's got to be here for a reason. It's not just that we've had kids. I mean, we've been together a long time. So, Mm -hmm. I was like, he really loves something. (laughs) Even though I'm nuts sometimes. (laughs) But Do you still not know what it is that he loves? Leave it to him. It's everything. I, which is funny to me. I just, I mean, I know that sometimes I have my wall up so, so bad. I think I try to push him away sometimes. Yeah. Just because I, to me, it's not normal. I'm like, you, you well, can't you, love me like that. It's just not normal. If my own mother didn't love me like that, right. how do you love me like that? Right. You know? 
because you were convinced very early that you were not lovable or choosable, mm-hmm. that it would be counterintuitive to you to go, yeah, it, exactly. Because you've you had so much evidence, evidence, I use that in air quotes, mm-hmm. that if you were seen, I mean, you had a core, fundamental, significant trauma at six years old. You know, that not only were you not loved or seen, that she didn't want you to live anymore. She didn't really not want you to live, but, like, the the physical presence of you was that painful to her. So mm-hmm. you have a lot of evidence to support, I use air quotes again, this notion that you aren't lovable. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure that his expression of the truth about the situation, actually, is probably uncomfortable. Right. And you probably feel like there's something suspect. Because it would be easier than, I would think if you push him away, at least then it would be on your terms. As opposed to him finding the thing that obviously must mean you're flawed and unlovable, and then him choosing to go. Mm -hmm. How does he respond to you pushing him away? He doesn't let me. No? He's like, I'll give you your space, but I'm not going anywhere. That's just what it is. He's like, you're stuck with me. He's like, I understand you, you've you got an issue going on. He's like, I've been around you long enough to know that you're going through something. He's like, but I'm not going anywhere. So even if I wanted to get rid of him, he won't leave. I want to have a parade for this guy. <laughs> Where do we have a parade for him? What's his name? Aaron. Aaron. I need everyone to form an Aaron parade because this guy makes me real happy right now. Oh, he's so funny. Yeah. I'm really glad um, that he found you. Yeah. You deserve to be found. So you said you and your mama are close. I'm curious how you got there because um, I would have a hard time Mm -hmm. with that. And I still do. I mean, the reality is I'm working on a personal memoir. It's called I Should Hate You, But I Don't. Oh. Yeah, it's deep. (laughs) I'm telling you, my life. I don't know how I'm built the way that I am. Like, if I was a grudge holder, which to some extent I am, I wouldn't have anybody around me. But I just kind of let go and let God at all times. I'm like, this is not, I, it's out of my control. So I think for my mom, after her failed relationships, and it came to light about the guy, her boyfriend that was trying to touch me in my sleep, his other daughters, he's got five other daughters. So my sister's sisters came to her and was like, oh, yeah, our dad is gross. He's done foul things to everybody. So it took her to hear it from an outside source to know that it was true. So she gets away from that and starts to rehabilitate herself instead of trying to find love through men. And then once my other siblings did her wrong, like her, my, I would say my younger sister the most, no, probably both my sisters have put her through the ringer. And she realized, hey, my only good child, the child that I don't really interact with, is the only one that's never cussed me out. The only one that's never disrespected me, and I've treated her the shittiest. Yeah. Isn't that funny? And I think, you know, she tried to come back and slowly build a relationship with me, but when I got pregnant with my son is what did it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that connection to him was. I think she felt like, I'm going to be better to your baby than I was to you. Mm, she's trying to make it up to you. Pretty much. Pretty much. Is there no... Is there a part of you that wants to go, I'm still here? Oh, all the time. Directly. You can do it directly. All the time. But, again, it's like, it is what it is. If that's her way of dealing, I mean, if I could really sit down with her and pick her brain and see how she's coping with things, then maybe I'd have a better understanding. But 
I think, yeah, she's trying to right her wrongs through my kids. When you said you don't hold grudges, I had this thought. Um, I don't think you, I don't think you do. Uh, but I'm wondering if maybe you turn all of that on yourself. I'm wondering if all of the resentment and anger and the, um, the stuff that would come naturally from being so profoundly disappointed and not just disappointed, but injured, Mm -hmm. it has to go somewhere. You know, I know that you can release it. I've released people who've hurt me, Mm -hmm. um, but for a while, then, there's it creates actual, like, I mean, I really think it creates actual, st- like, residue, mm-hmm. you know, like, in us. And so I'm wondering if then, where does it come out then? Is it in self-judgment? Because I, I, you, I, you do not strike me as somebody who's gentle to yourself at all. No. No, I don't think I am either. No. So you're still, you are at a place for sure where you've internalized the message that you're not enough. Mm-hmm. Do you want to let that go? I want to, and it's like, I don't know how. Yeah. Well, it's so self-defining. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't... Have you ever Have you ever stepped into even a little bit of a space where you were like, no, that was good enough? No. What about in your music? Did that ever happen in your music? When I write, I think... Yeah, I feel like, okay, because no, who's going to argue with it? Like, I mean, these are my words. None of them are musical. They're not going to judge it everything oh it's good it's good I'm like are you really listening to it though oh no it's good it's good so I think my music is probably my escape so Mm -hmm. in there I'm free somewhere in there I'm free even though the stories that come out are hurtful Aaron kind of made a comment about that he's like do you ever write about anything that's not and I'm like what real no I don't have songs about butterflies and things no I have songs about the truth and truthfully everything hurts so yeah a lot of my music is very sad and heavy like it's heavy stuff I mean I've gone to some heavy heavy places before where I was like if it wasn't for my kids I don't know that I would be here yeah I was like um Aaron's like please don't tell me you're suicidal and I was like it's not that I'm suicidal I mean these are just real thoughts I'm like if I could be free and go back to the one person who was he was there if I could do that I would so do that I said but it's selfish Considering I have kids now. And I said, as a mommy, I can't leave them. Yeah. So a part of me thinks that they are my saving grace. But for a long time, I did not want to be here. I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. No, you've been in constant pain. Yeah, and that's just how I feel. And, you know, it worries him. And he's like, do I need to call somebody? You know, everybody in his family, they're all pastors. He's like, do I need to get one of my uncles on the line? <laughs> like, no, you don't need a pastor. I'm just talking through it. I was like, this is what I do. I talk through it. And I said, it's just a heavy truth. Like, if I didn't have my kids, I don't think I would be here. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, what about me? And again, I still kind of think it's not a joke, but I'm like, how do you love me? Like, how do you love me? I can't even say that I would stay here for you because a part of me feels like, how do you love me? I don't get it. So, yeah. Do you think there's anything lovable in you? I don't know. You don't know? I think I'm a kind person. I mean, I know I'm a kind person. Okay. Not but. Now just stay with that for a second. I know I'm a kind person. I don't care if you have to say it. I don't care if that's the only thing you say to yourself for a million times a day. Because here's the truth. At some point, we actually do, 
we do get to tell, we end up telling ourselves the story that we make real. It, that's not true when you're six. You are subject to everyone else's story. It is not true when you lose, lose the person to whom you belonged. There is nothing you can do to change that part of the story. There's nothing. But today, you can, you can choose to not put a but after, I am a kind person. I'm not asking you to love your body. I'm not asking you to do that. That's, oh, that's an asinine amount of work most of the time for me. Okay. <laughs> okay? But maybe you could let one nice thing exist. Just one. Just one. You don't even need to make it ten. Because you are, I, I don't need to know the rest of your life. I know exactly how you impact the world. And I would like to go with brave because you're pretty brave too. I think you could probably make a little space for kind and brave. I'm not asking you to love your body or to think that you're enough because that's you have to build up to that. You've spent an entire life having it be torn down, right? Right. Do you think it's possible to stay with just I am a kind person? I think all things are possible. Yeah. It's going to take a lot of work. What was the but you were going to say? I'm curious about how you were going to dismiss your kindness. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I, I just feel like I have a black cloud over me. I always have. It's like you, oh. you provide rain and make the grass grow, but nobody really wants a thunderstorm. Like, oh. I don't know. Oh, that is a... But nobody really wants a thunderstorm. I actually, um, I don't know if you know this about me, I love to sit on my porch and watch clouds roll in. There's something about the energy that the storm changes around me in a way that that is alive. Mm-hmm. So some people want one. Yeah. I'm not making that up. It's true. Uh, I think you are... Um, possibly the most brave person I've met and I've met a lot of brave people because you are still here and I don't know that most of us would be so I get that when I say that it probably feels somewhat lonely actually because you want footsteps in front of you I know I can tell by the way you talk about it you know and I would love to give you some sort of like weird not weird I would love to give you some consolation some line that makes it feel better and it's there's nothing to there is nothing to soothe it that way other than I know, I know for sure that the power to, to, to shift your story um, starts with what you tell yourself. I know it at, your, at this age, not at six. Mm-hmm. But today I know it's true. I know that it can start with I am a kind person, period. And then the other thing I want to say that is really none of my business, but there's something about um, the writing and the poetry and the music that is like your lifeblood. I can feel it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, someday I really want to hear you sing. <laughs> it doesn't have to be today because I know you're a mess. I know. <laughs> you know, um, is there anything else you want people to know? I don't know. I just think I'm misunderstood. Some people see me and they think I'm mean because I don't smile all the time. But I I just don't... I don't want to necessarily say I don't have a reason to. I just, I just don't. Mm, I love that. Why is, it, why is it a rule that we have to smile? Why is that a rule? 
Like, really, I, you're right. Yeah. People do not like it when, especially women, they do mm-hmm. not like it if women are not smiling. Yeah. So immediately people are like, when I first met you, I thought you were mean because you weren't smiling. And I, okay, I'm probably one of the kindest people you'll ever meet. You just can't get past the exterior. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for letting me pass the exterior. You're welcome. You've definitely, um, you've made my world different, and I'm grateful for that. So thank you for letting me pass it. You're welcome. Nothing else, friend? No, I need to pull myself together. (laughs) Okay, thank you. All right, friends, that's it for our time with Tiffany. You know, I've listened to this podcast at least 10 times through the process of editing and producing this interview, and it still takes my breath away. There are parts of that interview where I'm taken back to the moment where she laid her truth on the table between us, and all that was left was this silence, because sometimes there aren't words to soothe people. She's in pain, and she didn't want to be soothed. She just wanted someone to see her. I'm hopeful that this interview will accomplish that, both for her and for everyone who has the gift of hearing the interview. The other piece that I think is really important that she brings up is this idea that we walk around expecting people to be happy all the time. If their countenance is anything less than joyful, we assume a whole host of narratives about who they are and what's happening in their world. I think this is part of the narrative that keeps women small, this idea that we always have to be presenting something pleasant or perfect. What if we just allowed ourselves, gave ourselves permission to just show up and allow the people around us to do the same? What if we just assumed that they were able to show up with all of them and that it was okay if that didn't come off in a way that was full of happy endings? I think we'd all experience a lot more freedom, and freedom is something I think that we all deserve. If you think you might want to hear more stories about women, about their bodies, about beauty, and about belonging, make sure that you subscribe to this podcast. If you loved today's episode, take a second and leave a review so that other people will be able to find us. You can find out more information about the beautiful project in the show notes. Thank you for joining us today and lending your voice to our chorus of courage as we create a world where women belong with substance and with strength. I'll see you all soon.